I think this debate became very binary and it was like you could call for intervention in Syria and simultaneously grant yourself a moral high ground, but also avoid learning the lessons of what had happened. I mean, when people would say to me, you guys overlearned the lessons of Iraq, it just happened. Like sometimes you should learn lessons, you know, and it just happened and it just happened in the neighboring country with a kind of mirror image sectarian divide. And we had 150,000 troops in that country at the peak of the war, and we still couldn't stop people from killing each other. Why we were going to be able to stop people in Syria from killing each other with cruise missiles, that was the position that I found frustrating. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Last week, I was in Israel for a very brief trip to give an academic lecture. Now, I should preface this by saying that I don't follow Israeli politics nearly as closely as I should. And while my instinct is, of course, to be very skeptical of Benjamin Netanyahu and his governments, I sort of assumed that the new government that he was putting together would largely be more of the bad same. Now, I was worried about the fact that Netanyahu was about to enter into coalition with far-right extremist partners like Ben Gvir, but that effectively we should expect a continuation of the kind of governance that Israel saw in the many previous terms in which Netanyahu was prime minister. I was struck getting to Israel just how worried, quite moderate, reasonably establishment people in the country are about this incoming government. Netanyahu announced that he would try to disband the national broadcaster, is the Israeli equivalent of the BBC. He is keen to pass a law which allows the Knesset, the country's parliament, to overrule any decision of its Supreme Court by a simple vote of parliament. Israel actually has extremely few veto powers, unlike a country like the United States, where you need the House and the Senate and the Supreme Court and the presidency in order to pass a law, and in which many rights are constitutionally protected. In Israel, a simple majority in the Knesset is enough to change the basic law, and there are no other effective veto powers. And so all of that does add up to a concerted attack on basic democratic institutions in Israel. The pressure this puts not just on Israel's relationship with its neighbors or with the Palestinian territory, not just on the occupation and the settlements, but on the maintenance of the most basic democratic institutions within the state of Israel itself appears to be very, very serious. One political science gloss on this is that it challenges the distinction between uh, populist politicians and formerly mainstream politicians who become more populist as they prolong their stay in power, as the judiciary starts to investigate them, as it did Netanyahu. But the most fundamental point here is simply that we shouldn't make the mistake that I initially made of thinking sad and bad that Netanyahu is back in office, but in the end, it'll be more of the same. According to many people, 
whose judgment I take seriously in the country, what awaits the country is much more concerning and much more dangerous than what previous Netanyahu governments brought. My guest today is Ben Rhodes. Ben was a key foreign policy aide to Barack Obama during his eight years in the White House. He was the speechwriter for Obama's most important foreign policy speeches, and he held the title of Deputy National Security Advisor. Ben is also the author of two really interesting books, The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House, and After the Fall, Being American and the World We Made. We had a really broad conversation trying to figure out what in Ben's famous word was wrong with the blob of the foreign policy community in Washington, D.C., when Obama and Rhodes came to D.C., assessing the successes and failures of Obama's foreign policy during those eight years, and finally turning to the present moment and trying to understand what lies around the corner, how optimistic or pessimistic we should be about what awaits the world in the years to come. Ben Rhodes, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Asha. Good to see you. So you are fairly or unfairly most famous for one four-letter word, that of a blob. What is the blob that you are reacting to in the early years of the Obama administration? When you and Barack Obama came to Washington, D.C. in 2008, what was sort of the state of a foreign policy establishment in the United States, and what did you feel was wrong with it at the time? Well, I think for me, it actually kind of all starts with the Iraq war because I moved to Washington to be involved in American foreign policy in 2002. And that was very much the kind of peak of the post 9-11 impulse of the United States around the world. And as a young person, a 24, 25 year old working at a think tank, you know, I kind of watched this herd mentality rush to support the war in Iraq. Some people had a very you know, earnest views that it was the right thing to do. But I also kind of noticed some people just didn't want to be left off the train, you know, and I kind of resisted that for a while. But I got to a point where I almost felt kind of worn down. I remember when Colin Powell gave his presentation at the UN, kind of thinking to myself, well, I'm not sure about this war. But if all these people are saying this is what we absolutely must do, they must know something I don't. And so my formative years kind of taught me that maybe the people in charge don't know something that I don't. And Obama had basically differentiated himself as a politician because of his opposition to the war in Iraq. And I think what people forget is that 08 primary with Hillary was very much about foreign policy. Like the core contrast that he drew with Hillary was support for the war in Iraq versus his opposition. So I, I get that context because there always was a vein of Obama's foreign policy that was formed in criticism of an opposition to the war in Iraq. And I think when I use that phrase, the blob, it was later in the Obama administration, I was referring to a similar kind of group thing that I saw that both, I think, overstated the capacity of the United States to shape events inside of other countries, particularly in the Middle East, that was often reflexively interventionist without necessarily considering the consequences of, of interventions. And frankly, I was frustrated at that point, you know, that it was harder to build support in a way for a diplomatic agreement with Iran than it was to take this country to war in Iraq, you know? And so if you wrap it all up, you know, groupthink, interventionism, failure to reckon with the lessons of Iraq, that's kind of what I was talking about. I mean, Bob obviously relates to groupthink 
Um, but that's the group thing I was speaking to. And since then, I think some people who might see themselves as a part of that will say, well, you know, I was criticizing the liberal order. No, I, I'm all for the liberal order. <laughs> I was criticizing a very particular but predominant post 9-11 strain of American foreign policy. Yeah, it's funny, but a complete coincidence, I was just re-watching In the Loop, the great Armando Iannucci comedy about sort of how Britain and the United States went into the Iraq war. And there's this wonderful sort of minor character who, you know, is a young, ambitious staffer at the State Department who writes a paper that sort of sounds like it's sort of critical of the Iraq war. And suddenly this paper becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and people refer to it. And, you know, she's watching in panic as this paper is growing in prominence because she realizes this may kill her career. And so this sort of moment of pressure to go along with something that turned out to be a very bad idea. So I think that's an interesting biographical sort of account of your concern about the block, but in, and I realize you, you use the term later, but sort of in that first moment, what was wrong in the worldview of the foreign policy establishment? By the time that Obama came into office, the sort of lesson that the Iraq war was a mistake had become obvious to many people. But what broader lessons did you think that the administration should take from it? What broader lessons did the administration take from the failure of a war in Iraq? Well, I thought and continue to think that it was not just Iraq, that it was an enormous mistake to kind of marshal all of American national security policy, really, in some ways, American identity itself, and direct it into this war against terror. You know, America had this kind of completely unique moment in world history of dominance of global affairs after the end of the Cold War. And we took all of that power and kind of just directed it at this global war on terrorism, which could encompass everything from the war in Iraq to opening up, you know, the prison in Guantanamo to the Patriot Act and increasing governmental powers of surveillance to kind of framing an us versus them view of counterterrorism that I think proved a pretty useful frame to autocrats. All of these things, all this momentum that was kind of unleashed after 9-11 when Obama came in, that was still what was driving American foreign policy. I mean, we had 180,000 troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. We were just off the surge in Iraq, and people were already chomping at the bit to do a surge in Afghanistan. We were creeping into places like Yemen and Somalia militarily. And so I think in the early days of the Obama administration, the goal was, well, how do we unwind this? You can't just hit a button and stop all these wars, much to the dissatisfaction, I think, of some critics on the left. It's just not feasible to do that. But how do we shift the direction of American foreign policy to start bringing troops home, to start deprioritizing, frankly, terrorism relative to other issues like climate change and like recovery from the global financial crisis at that time? And how do you kind of adjust to the fact that America is not as dominant as the blob thinks we are? That last piece may be the most important in some ways in that I still think that there's a view from Washington that it's frozen in time in like 1993. We can impose our will. We can shape events. We can act with impunity. We can make mistakes without kind of paying the price for those mistakes. We can set a bad example <laughs> through torture or Guantanamo without thinking that other countries might copy that example. That, to me, was the core tension kind of between Obama and some of the more, whatever you want to call them, you know, interventionist blob <laughs> forces. Now, in terms of how we did, I think we did that part of the way. We were able to draw down the war in Iraq. We had this laborious review in Afghanistan that I think mistakenly led to probably a bigger surge than was necessary. 
we did prioritize some other issues. So, you know, I think any foreign policy is imperfect. And I think Obama was constantly kind of calibrating how much he could wind down the post 9-11 era and lead us into something different while doing so responsibly. What's interesting to me is that I sort of fully agree with your characterization of the weaknesses of that set of assumptions, right? But clearly, as we've seen over and over again, being humbled in one theater after the next, the ability of the United States to shape events around the world is very limited. But one of the sort of seeming lessons of something like Iraq was, well, you don't get involved, you stay out. And certainly in the case of Iraq, I think that was the right lesson. At the same time, when you look then at what happened in Libya and even more strongly what happened in Syria, you might say, well, actually, if you get only half drawn or if you mostly stay out, the results can be just as catastrophic. So how do you think the Obama administration performed in Libya and in Syria? And what lessons should we take from that? Is it that we should have done more? Or is it actually more radically pessimistic than what you're saying? Because what you're saying seems to be, well, look, if we just restrain ourselves and are aware of the limits of how much power we have, we might be able to come to better outcomes. Perhaps the truth of the matter is that in many areas of the world, the outcome is going to be bad regardless of what we do, which perhaps militates for the same conclusion, but in a sort of slightly more pessimistic, more somber tone than sort of I took you to be intoning. I guess two things to that, Yasha. I mean, the first is, as someone who was constantly arguing to do more in Syria at the time. A big misconception of me is that I was somehow completely in charge and, you know, of our Syria policy. No, I was actually up through that red line episode. I was one of the people, you know, kind of banging on the table, like we need to be doing more. And Obama would constantly push back and say, well, then what? You know, we bomb the runways where the planes are taking off, then they rebuild the runways. And then what do we do? And I think what he saw is that there was no way into Syria that didn't get us deeper and deeper and deeper in. Well, that's interesting because I think one of the criticisms people might make is that he overlearned the lessons of Iraq, but that sounds like he actually had Vietnam in mind. I mean, it's an interesting question. What did he have in mind? It wasn't necessarily Iraq. Yeah, Vietnam is more apt in the sense that like, if you get in for a limited reason, let's say just to punish for chemical weapons or just to stop the barrel bomb attack, it was actually a lesson from Libya, to be fair. The intervention in Libya was designed at the beginning to protect civilians in a particular place, Benghazi, where Gaddafi was announcing publicly that he was going to go house to house and massacre people. And it was the kind of heart of the opposition. And so we could literally see on a map, you know, here are Gaddafi's forces. They've reached the outskirts of this city. If they go in there, there's going to be a real massacre. And we can just stop him where he is and prevent that massacre. As soon as that intervention happened, however, there was a logic that ran quickly to regime change because Gaddafi continued to kill other Libyans in other places. And so long as Gaddafi was there, he posed a threat to Libyan civilians. And if you intervened to protect Libyan civilians, the snowball quickly rolled down the mountain to regime change. And there's interesting counterfactuals about like, could we have stopped the NATO intervention in Libya short of a Gaddafi removal from power. At the time, though, the momentum just overwhelmingly tipped in that direction. And so I think Obama, rightly, I mean, I've taken a lot of heat on this issue over the years because I've tried to defend Obama's thinking. I'm not defending the outcome of the horrific war in Syria, but I think it's easy to look at that situation and say, well, if you guys had gone in, you know, you would have saved all of those lives. 
What is the evidentiary basis to think that a U.S. military intervention automatically leads to a better outcome when we have Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya telling us that it doesn't? That the U.S. military could have been a part of the war in Syria, and there still would have been the same degree of suffering, the same degree of refugees. The U.S. could have even removed Assad, and those things could have happened. So I do think on this question of war, war is a tool of statecraft in the Middle East in particular to engineer outcomes inside of other countries. I don't see what policy would have somehow worked in Syria after not working in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya. Now, I don't think, and I think it is wrong to equate that with a pessimism about what America can do generally, because fighting wars in the Middle East is not the only tool of American statecraft. And the second term Obama foreign policy, which I was very enthusiastic about more so than the first, you see a lot of US-led efforts to mobilize collective action, whether it's the Ebola response in West Africa, whether it's the Paris Climate Accord, whether it's the Iran nuclear deal, which is a multi-year multilateral initiative. I led the normalization of relations with Cuba, which helped lead in part to an end to the Colombian civil war. I reject the pessimism label entirely because actually I think it's fighting wars in the Middle East that has kept us from doing lots of things in the world and opened up a massive playing field to Russia and China to shape events around them. So to me, when criticism of the forever wars is kind of cast as kind of a permanent pessimistic state about American leadership, I actually turn that inside out. No, those wars kept us from doing the things that we should have been doing. Yeah, so that's a nice qualification, but I guess it's perhaps a local pessimism, right? It is to say, there are some situations in which any course of action that the United States might take is going to lead to disaster, not acting at all, whatever that means, is going to lead to disaster as well. And there's just no way of avoiding terrible bloodshed in Syria. Now, in other areas, we might be able to bring about good outcomes, and we should be heavily involved, and we might be able to normalize relations with Cuba and make progress on climate change. But sort of However, you rerun the counterfactual tables, the outcome in Syria is essentially always going to be a huge humanitarian catastrophe. So, you know, a deep pessimism about one case, even if you're saying when there's other areas in which the United States can be effective to advance very important values and very important goals. I have a deep pessimism about war. I mean, I just want to be very specific about this. Like, tell me how often that turns out well. It's kind of shocking to me, Yasha, when you look back on Vietnam, there's something called the Vietnam Syndrome, which is that Americans overlearned that lesson of the Vietnam War and it made them more reticent to get into other wars. Why is that a syndrome? That seems like logic that you would learn from something like Vietnam. And not just Vietnam, it's Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia. There's not a lot of evidence of happy wars. Look at Russia. They're learning that lesson right now themselves. Now, in Syria, people should mount critiques about whether we should have used more limited use of force in response to chemical weapons just to reinforce a norm. But also, I think people can ask other questions like, was it wise for the United States under Barack Obama to call for Assad to go as leader, to basically say that our position was there was no world in which he could remain president of Syria? I don't say that because I think Assad should be president of Syria. I would love him to go. I wish he left in 2011 when the first protest happened. However, that may have closed a certain window on any diplomatic initiative, one that might have been unsatisfying, but that could have saved a lot of lives. And we kind of got into this position in the Arab Spring of calling for different leaders to go. I was a part of those decisions. So I'm trying to be self-reflective here. Regime change and the U.S. kind of dictating who can stay as leader or not 
It's actually war attached to regime change that has been the most messy for us, certainly in the post 9-11 environment. So I think that we have to reckon with, it's not just US foreign policy, it's the question of when do you go to war and how do you go to war and for what ends do you go to war? And that's the lesson that I don't think enough of the Bob wanted to learn after the war. I'll give you another example about Iraq, which is that like, there are all these debates in Washington after that went bad about, did we not send in enough troops? And should we have disbanded the Iraqi army and did depathification? Did that make sense? It almost allowed people to avoid answering the question of like, why did we go in and invade and occupy this country when they hadn't done anything to provoke us in terms of the development of weapons of mass destruction? Like, it was like more comfortable to debate these other things than the kind of core issue of like, when do we go to war and for what purpose do we go to war? I think there's two interesting strands here. One that I want to come back to is about when you call on a leader to resign, especially when you know your government has links with their government, right? As was the case in Egypt, for example. I'll come back to that. What I want to push you on first is this idea of war, which I agree very strongly is whenever you can avoid having a war, you should avoid having a war. And I do think that the one heartening thing about the horrible events in Ukraine is that Perhaps it'll lead some more superpowers to realize how big the risks to them are, especially when it's a war of choice, as Ukraine clearly is. But I guess I want to distinguish between two different ways you can talk about you want to avoid having a war. Because when you talk about Iraq, that's pretty clean, right? I mean, Saddam Hussein was a horrible dictator who was repressing his people in a terrible way. But it was a country at peace, an uneasy peace, and a very unpleasant peace, but it was a country at peace. And so the bar for starting a war of choice should be very, very high. And I believe then, and I believe now, and you believe then, you believe now, that it wasn't met in the case of Iraq, that that was really an instance of the United States starting a war that wasn't already going on. It seems to me that something like Syria is a different case, right? Because here it's easy to say, well, you know, war is not going to be the solution. We shouldn't have a war. But it's not a question about whether there will be a war at the point when you know, America was facing those choices and you were facing those choices. There was a war going on. The question was, should we get drawn as a party to the war? And that feels to me like a fundamentally quite different question. And one of the things that's different is that it might have much more different answers as to the different interests at stake, right? It might be the best for people of Syria, for the United States to get drawn into the war, but not for people of the United States. Now, the president of the United States should serve the interests of the United States. And that's fine, perhaps. But it's just this would be underlying set of choices seems to me much more complicated when you're talking about a situation where tragically a war is already going on. And the question is, do we intervene in it in some kind of way, as opposed to a scenario like Iraq, where horrible as the situation on the ground was under Saddam Hussein, there wasn't a war and the Bush administration decided by choice to start a war. Well, first of all, there are a lot of wars that are happening around the world at any given time. So I take your point to a certain extent, Yasha, but like there are wars in Congo, there are wars in the Horn of Africa. Nobody's arguing that the U.S. should go to war in Ethiopia and Tigray, even though that's a horrific war. There is something about the Middle East. You would not be asking me this question about a war in Congo that killed a lot more people than in Syria. Millions of people died in that war. A war in Ethiopia that very well may end up killing more people than in Syria. So when this is framed purely as a humanitarian question around the fact of a Syrian civil war, we do have to ask ourselves why that is not directed at other parts of the world. I would argue it's usually because there's some geopolitical interest that you know compels us to focus more on this question. 
So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is because it's a civil war, it's even more complicated to get involved. When it's a civil war, it's also a proxy war. It's more complicated. And I think you can mount an argument that it's hard to see how that Syrian civil war takes place, or at least certainly not as it did, absent our invasion of Iraq too, in terms of unleashing a certain degree of sectarian tension, overthrowing a Sunni government in a neighboring country, all manner of, as we saw with ISIS, transit across that border. But to come back to it, should we get involved is often framed as, if you care about something, you should be going to war in this country. So in other words, like if you don't support going to war in Syria, you don't care about what's happening to people in Syria. Which again, I think if you ask the people of Iraq and Afghanistan, I don't think that it's a clear-cut case that our being at war in their country for 10 or 20 years was a net positive for them or was a demonstration of how much we cared about them. If we went to war in Syria, we would no doubt have been killing people in Syria ourselves. And with an uncertain outcome and no obvious end state, no government in waiting to come you know, take over the country. So I do think that the criticism and the ferocity of the criticism that came at Obama in his later years over Syria, some of it was very appropriately just reflective of the outrage people felt about what was happening in Syria. But some of it to me did feel like a way of avoiding hard questions about what the track record of our wars was. Why was this war going to be different than the previous three? And when people put the question to me, I sometimes would try to do what Obama did in return. It's like, well, describe to me the war you wanted to have there. Like, what would you want to do in Syria? And people would say, well, you should have launched cruise missile attack after the chemical weapons. Well, nothing we know about Assad that suggests he would give up at that state. Maybe he starts using chemical weapons more indiscriminately because he's like, what the hell? I've crossed every line. I'll keep crossing them. Then we would ultimately have to go in and remove him. And what would happen after we moved Assad? I don't think the Russians and Iranians would just lose their interest in Syria. I don't think that the Alawite community that felt like this was an existential struggle would just, you know, accede to a, a multi-party democracy. Then we're in a multi-year civil war ourselves, in which we are a party, and in which we have the responsibility for having dislodged that government. And so this is not me saying that everything we did is right, because I would be the first to acknowledge that that's not the case. But it, it is me saying... I think this debate became very binary and it was like, you could call for intervention in Syria and simultaneously grant yourself a moral high ground, but also avoid learning the lessons of what had happened. I mean, when people would say to me, you guys overlearned the lessons of Iraq, it just happened. Like sometimes you should learn lessons, you know, and it just happened and it just happened in the neighboring country with a kind of mirror image sectarian divide. And we had 150,000 troops in that country at the peak of the war, and we still couldn't stop people from killing each other. Why we were going to be able to stop people in Syria from killing each other with cruise missiles, that was the position that I found frustrating. I guess that's why, to me, at least in the context of the Middle East, the tempting description of what's happening is that actually there's a whole set of complicated reasons why that region is particularly volatile at the moment, particularly prone to wars and civil wars and so on, which are not grand transhistorical reasons. I think they have to do with this particular moment in that particular region of the world. And, you know, I'm sort of sympathetic to the idea that, you know, essentially whatever choice the United States makes in these conflicts is going to turn out bad, including the choice to not really make a choice, right? <laughs> including the choice to intervene the least possible. And of course, the result of that is frustrating for anybody who's in government because your choice is always going to be compared with some imagined alternative where everything turns out fine, even if that imagined alternative doesn't exist or even if that imagined alternative cannot be reached 
from within the agency that the president of the United States, powerful as he or she might be, has. And I guess that to me makes this pessimistic reading of at least this set of questions about foreign policy coherent and actually sound like a good defense of Obama. But I guess let me push you on how far you accept that about something like Syria, right? Because either, you know, to put it starkly, right, like either there was a better choice available that would have avoided the civil war, that would have avoided hundreds of thousands of people dying. And that would have at least been a pretty strong prima facie reason to go and do it. I guess either you say there's some choice that somebody could have made where we could have avoided that horrible bloodshed. And in that case, it's hard not to know why it isn't at some level the thought of the administration in which you served that we didn't take the choice and we didn't avoid the terrible outcome. Or what you're saying is a pessimistic reading, which I actually am quite sympathetic to, but which you seem to reject, which is, look, in the case of Syria, there's just nothing the White House could have done to substantially avoid the catastrophe. Now, benefit of hindsight is 2020, and I'm sure there's this thing or that thing that you know, various actors could have done to slightly improve the outcome. But effectively, there just wasn't a realistic scenario that would have avoided Assad being able through this bloody war of attrition to eventually run the table. But sort of, which is it? It's got to kind of be one or the other, right? Oh, no, I'm, I'm far more on the pessimistic side on this one, Yasha. I mean, but I don't want to seem like I'm just trying to absolve that there could have been somewhat better outcomes. I mean, ironically, when I look back on the whole thing, trying to avoid the civil war through diplomacy that didn't insist on Assad leaving was probably the thing that could have saved the most lives. That diplomacy could have failed too, by the way. I mean, because it was kind of all or nothing. And it was all or nothing, not just for people in Syria. There were a lot of other foreign powers involved. I guess to just tie it to bigger questions, though, like one, I do think it says something interesting about the nature of the American national security establishment, for lack of a better way of putting it, that there was such a hyper focus on this region these last 20 years, which I think when we look back historically, you know, the far more consequential trends are climate change, the state of democracy, global inequality, and how that interacts with democracy. There's something wrong with an establishment that is focused on the wrong things. And I think that's a kind of reflection that I think has been taking place to some extent, uh, probably not as much as it should, or even in just hard geopolitical terms, like we should have been more focused on China these last 20 years. This focus on a number of countries in the Middle East, I think, is going to look incredibly ahistorical and irrational the further we get from it. I understand why you're pressing on the kind of outcomes in Syria, but th this is the bigger point. Just what is it about our national security enterprise that we became so fixated on this one part of the world relative to other parts of the world? And that's where I lose my pessimism. I'm not like a dead-ender who thinks America can't do anything good in the world I'm not reflexively taking on a kind of leftist critique that we should just stay out of everything. Part of what I'm saying is because we were so overextended in this one part of the world, and Syria would have you know, merely extended that overextension had we gotten involved in more, our capacity to do these other things was greatly reduced. And I think people don't like to think in terms of trade-offs, but there's a limited number of people in the US government, there's a limited number of resources. If you're focusing it and a set of wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and then potentially Syria, you are by definition are not doing other things. I felt that bandwidth free up to some extent in the second Obama term or that prioritization shift to things like climate that I think are hugely important. And I'm not saying the Paris Accord solved the climate crisis, but it did build a foundation for it. And these things have to be seen as connected, I think. 
So let's shift out of the Middle East, because I think you're right that this conversation probably has so far suffered from some of the same problems you outlined. I mean, another big strategic choice was to say the real long-term strategic rival is China rather than Russia, and we should attempt to reset with Russia. We should not focus on Russia as a threat. We should focus on China. It seems to me that with the benefit of hindsight, there's sort of two criticisms of this, right? The first is that it turns out that Russia was much more dangerous than we thought in Syria, in Georgia, in the Donbass, and now, of course, in the whole war in the Ukraine. Russia has just turned out to be a very disruptive force in the short and medium term. And even though the fundamental analysis that Russia is not as credible a long-term strategic threat to the United States as China is, becomes ever more true with each passing day, as John Ronald Keynes famously said in the context of economics, in the long run, we're all dead. And so sort of was there a miscalculation about Russia and how to contain Russia's influence? And was the sense that Russia is fading as a threat to the United States, does that make us too complacent about how much havoc and damage the country can cause in the meanwhile? And then the second half of the question is that there was an argument over how much to focus on China in 2008-2010. It seems to me that effectively the Obama administration was right to the extent that we should focus on China, right? It was right to say that clearly China is going to be a very important player in the long run, and that's not something that was obvious 10 or 20 years earlier than that, and it required a real shift in emphasis and in understanding. But it seems to me that the Obama administration, along with everybody else in Washington, D.C., and by the way, along with virtually every China scholar and every journalist in the country, was fundamentally wrong about the trajectory of China. So a lot of what it sounded like in 2008 to say, you know, China is a real priority here, was to think, well, we need to engage them and build this sort of long-lasting partnership, friendship, you know, integrate China into all of these international institutions. And that way, even if China might not become a democracy, which many people have time for, it could become, it'll make it a very responsible player in the international liberal order and so on and so forth. All of that with the internal transformations within China in the last 10 years, the consolidation of power of Xi Jinping looks somewhat naive in retrospect. So I guess, would you accept these criticisms of the sort of broader shift in priority or what do they look like with the additional knowledge that we've gained since then, which, as I'm saying, to be fair, nobody had at the time. You know, it's interesting. I'll do China first. On China, I guess I would challenge the critique a little bit more than Russia, which I'll come to in a second. But we didn't incorporate China into the international order. That was long since done by the time that we came in. You know, I mean, the main decision points, you know, were the WTO for Clinton. And I'm hard pressed to actually think of any piece of the international order that we kind of brought China into or elevated China. That was the state of play when we came in. That's fair. That's true. Yeah. I will accept some of the premise, which is we had an engagement-focused policy. Now, we came in in the aftermath of the financial crisis, and there was no way out of the financial crisis for the United States absent some coordination with China. And so I'm going to get around to my critique of our policy. But on the positive side, I think when you look back, we were trying to shape a containment strategy in Asia. And actually, much to my frustration, I wanted us to call it that more openly, right? But there was this kind of delicate balance between how we describe what we were doing. But if you look at what we were doing, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Trump tore up and you know Hillary negotiated and then walked away from, look at who's in that 
agreement. <laughs> that's the team, right? Like that's the group of countries. Yeah, that's a key piece of a containment strategy. Yeah, it's a containment strategy. And by the way, it wasn't just trade that we were operating on. We were working to integrate ourselves into kind of the East Asian framework of ASEAN and dealing with the Southeast Asian countries. And we were building a military presence. We were doing a lot of the things that have continued under Trump and, and Biden. We just didn't beat our chest as much about it. So I think that we actually were, you know, as much as people like to make fun of like pivots and rebalancing. Again, when people look back on this, they will see that we set an orientation that was increasingly trying to draw lines and limits around China and build a framework to be able to compete with them and confront them if need be. I think what Trump did is he turned that into a bilateral trade war instead of a multilateral kind of strategy. And Biden's trying to turn it back into a multilateral strategy, which is harder when the U.S. is less reliable. You know, the TPP thing really hurt. You know, I mean, you spend seven years negotiating an agreement that requires other countries to change their laws to be a part of it. There is a consequence of just kind of pulling out of that because of domestic politics here in the U.S. And I think it's undermining Biden's capacity to multilateralize his China policy. Where I'm critical of us is simply on not being more outspoken about the kind of rising threats to democracy within China and around the world from China. I think we incorporated a bit of a self-censorship in how the U.S. establishment talked about China, that you'd express concern about some event in Tibet or some detention of an individual dissident, but we weren't kind of mounting a critique of the model they were building that met what was happening. I've said in my last book, After the Fall, can anybody look at America's relationship with China from Tiananmen Square till today. And I'm talking about relationship of governments, but also the, our business community, also our cultural sector. And can anybody say that we prioritized at any given point democracy and human rights and values over profit? No way. And that's the message the Chinese took. Like This is where I become more critical on all of us, which is including the Obama administration, right? which is that if you're China, why would you think that America cares more about values and profit? based on your experience dealing with America. like they, They've simply become a representation of kind of what we care the most about, which is, can we make money in this place or can these people help us manage the global economy? And I think that requires a lot more self-reflection than just saying, you know, you should have been harder on China in this spat over a rock in the South China Sea, you know? On Russia, the reset at the time, we're coming in and the financial crisis has happened and the Georgia war had happened. That was already a frozen conflict. And Medvedev was in there. And again, I will defend this policy without having, I wasn't like the architect of the reset policy. Ironically, Mike McFall was the architect of the reset policy, who's now a huge critic, obviously, of Putin. But the idea, I think, was sound in a way, which is that, well, this country is got a different leader. We know Putin's still in the background, but like, let's see what we can get done in this particular window of time when Medvedev was trying to put forward this kind of different face. And we did a lot of things. So we did a New START treaty, which I don't think I would have not done the New START treaty, even if I knew what was going to happen after. Having limitations on nuclear weapons and delivery systems, I think was a good thing to do. And you know, we were resupplying troops in Afghanistan through Russia, which is crazy to think about now. The Iran sanctions that Medvedev joined through the UN, I think helped get Iran to the negotiating table that led to the nuclear deal. So there are elements of that that I think are still defensible and that, well, if you've got a guy who looks like he wants to do some business that serves your interests, 
you know, test that. And then actually at a certain point, I think we were even thinking, well, maybe Medvedev, you know, might want to challenge Putin. I think he did, by the way. Dmitry Medvedev is a fascinating figure because now he's kind of the most out there fascist, seems to be kind of a raving alcoholic. But at the time, I think, you know, you could kind of sense that he and some people around him were wondering whether they could push Putin to not run in the 2012 Russian presidential election. Obviously, that didn't happen. <laughs> and Medvedev fell in line right away. So then I think our miscalculation was more about how forcefully Russia was going to shift from the Medvedev years to what where Putin came in. You know, because to me, Russia wasn't, I don't want to suggest they weren't doing anything wrong in the Medvedev years. They, they were obviously still occupying a chunk of Georgia, but they were not obviously anywhere near the kind of hyper-aggressive nationalist authoritarian force that they have become. So I think it's, to me, that period of transition to Putin we didn't adjust fast enough. Now, what would that have meant? I don't know. I guess that would have meant kind of beefing up Eastern European security in the way that we did after the annexation of Crimea. Like we might have just tried to get ahead of some of those things. On Ukraine, I think it's a very difficult set of questions because when we came into government, Bush had kind of offered this membership action plan into NATO, like on the way out the door in 2008, which I think was a pretty irresponsible way of doing it to just kind of throw out there in the spring of 2008, Ukraine and Georgia will have these membership action plans, knowing that a lot of the alliance did not support that, right? And this is a consensus-based alliance. So there, there was no way that even if the United States wanted those countries in NATO, that that was going to happen anytime soon, given the changes that they were going to have to make in their military, given the views of other NATO allies. And by the way, within, uh, I think, six months of that happening, Georgia's already invaded and there are these two parts of Georgia that are de facto occupied by Russia. And the Bush administration didn't do anything in response to the Georgia station in the summer of September. I mean, people criticize our saying, I don't even think there were sanctions over Georgia. So I'm not sure what a different Ukraine policy would have looked like early in the Obama years, especially because Yanukovych was president and didn't want to be in NATO too. I mean, he was happy to be the Russian guy, right? So like it wasn't Zelensky in there. So Ukraine, I think is a little more complicated. So I think the point that it was the years of Medvedev and that you have to try and build a bridge back is very convincing to me. And I remember thinking at the time, well, you know, clearly Putin has all the power in the background, but once somebody else is president and is sort of formally in the seat of power, you can imagine a development where real rivalry develops. And given all the noise that Medvedev made at the time, that seemed like a very promising development. So I think that's fair to take us back into that mind frame and say, well, look, of course, you're going to try and engage, and of course, you're going to hope for, for the outcome that actually liberalizes Russia and so on. But to go back to what you were saying about China, you know, you said we've been teaching the Chinese for 25, 30 years that we're always going to take profits over our principles and that they shouldn't expect us to act differently. And they emulated that behavior and they used that in calibrating how we're likely to respond. I do think when I look at the entirety of our policy towards Putin since he took office, and as you're pointing out, key parts of that came under the Bush administration, we've been sending the same message, right? We've been saying you can, you know, wage brutal wars within the territory of a Russian federation, we won't say anything, and you can invade Georgia and we're not going to do anything, and you can, you know, invade a part of Ukraine and we're not going to do anything, and you can be the spoiler in Syria, one of the big international actors responsible for just how horrible and bloody the civil war turned out to be, and we're not going to do anything. So, you know, why should Putin have thought that this time would be different? I think it's different, though, in the sense of when I make the point about profit in China, I mean, it's about the enormous amount of money that's on the table in the relationship, right? Trillions of dollars in trade, 
stabilizing the global economy. Our businesses want access to that market. That is not the case in Russia. So I don't think that Russia has ever been driven by, and maybe in Europe, by the way, I think in Europe, there's a lot of money in the Russia relationship. I never felt in the same way I felt on China, that US business interests trumped security interests in the Russia relationship. So I think to me, there were kind of what Putin would try to play upon were transactionalism and geopolitics, which is different actually than economic issues. But with the Bush administration, I think he was very savvy in first guy to call Bush on 9-11. You know, you will call like him flying out to Crawford. He was going to put himself forward as kind of the model ally in the global war on terror. After a series of terrorist attacks in Russia, you know, he also was able to weaponize the language of the global war on terror to justify things like canceling the election of governors. But point being that there was a transactionalism of like, I'll be your best ally in the global war on terror, but you're not going to like what I do over here in the former Soviet space, but just butt out of that. And I think similarly in the Obama years, you know, Putin, insofar as Putin was still pulling strings when Medvedev was president, we'll do that your nuclear arms treaty will back you on Iran to a point, you know, not, there's no Iran nuclear deal without, you know, the Russians supporting sanctions and then at least pressing Iran a bit at the table. And there are other things, obviously, that at any given point, Russia's doing kind of in concert with the United States. I think for Putin, it was more like a geopolitical transactionalism than a monetary transactionalism of the Chinese. When you say he didn't pay a price, I'm not sure that's how I'd frame it at all, actually, because to Putin, he doesn't like a lot of things that we were doing. You know, he didn't like anything we were doing in the missile defense space. He didn't like anything that you know NATO was doing to reinforce Article 5 commitments in Eastern Europe. There are a lot of things that the Obama administration did and the Bush administration did for that matter. And he, frankly, even the Trump administration did, even if Trump himself wasn't that invested in it, that Putin really doesn't like. And so there was a lot of cost for Putin. You know, I just want to stop here and say, like, I don't agree with Putin's worldview. I don't accept it at all. But I think he believes it. You know, and I remember Obama telling me like his first meeting with Putin when Putin was prime minister, Obama went and met with him and got a three hour harangue that sounds, you know, quite similar to what he'd say today. Like, I tried to be Bush's friend. He pulled out of the ABM treaty. I tried to be your friend and you put these NATO membership action plans on the table for Ukraine and Georgia. We wanted to join the European security arrangements and you guys, you know, brought former Soviet republics like the Baltic countries into you know the drill, Yasha, but the point is that like, I think Vladimir Putin, whether you agree with him, and I certainly don't, does believe that American foreign policy has been imposing a cost on him. Gaddafi was his guy, Saddam was his guy. Just because he's wrong doesn't mean he doesn't think that, you know? That's a fair point. So I've been grilling you a lot on the past and for obvious reasons, because, you know, you, you were so influential in eight years of America's foreign policy. Where does that leave us today? I mean, when you look at the United States as geopolitical position today, it is in many ways more powerless than it has been in a few decades. You know, you have obviously an extremely fraught relationship with Russia, up to Russia making threats of using nuclear weapons and so on after its invasion of Ukraine. You have an increasingly fraught relationship with an increasingly authoritarian or some say totalitarian regime in China that is continuing to rise in power economically and militarily compared to the United States. And then you have a set of global democracies, which have traditionally been allies of sorts of the United States, at least from time to time, but that have actually kept a lot of distance from America in these last few years and which have not been willing to take a clear stance 
on most votes at least, between uh, Russia and Ukraine in this war. So, you know, what does that mean for anybody who's trying to devise a coherent foreign policy strategy for the United States going forward? And more broadly, what does that mean for the future of democratic values? Does that mean that this framework of democracy versus autocracy can help to forge links with countries that are going to grow more important and strategically key like India, Nigeria, and so on? Or is it actually just going to make those countries say, that's not how we see the world, and we're not going to you know, become part of your alliance of democracies? That's not in our interest. I think it leads me to believe that an overwhelming focus of the project of American foreign policy needs to be the revitalization of existing democratic space and the growing alignment of views among existing democracies. You know, there is a democratic recession and there's an autocratic push that is also, as we all know, kind of reaching into pieces of the democratic world. I think we have to kind of pause and be in a moment now where we're getting our own act together. I agree with you on that, but I have a piece in Foreign Affairs about a year ago where I say we should be talking about democracy protection, not democracy promotion. But when it came to trying to figure out what that actually means, I have a few suggestions in that piece, and I think they're okay suggestions, but it's not clear to me how many tools we have for democracy protection. What does it mean for the United States to try and protect democratic space in India or in Nigeria or in those other kind of countries? First and foremost, obviously, we have a lot of plumbing to do inside our own democracies, right? So let's put that aside. You and I probably agree with the kinds of reforms we'd like to see kind of pursued internally. But in terms of foreign policy, like, we do not have a common view of China with other democracies. You know, not at all. We're kind of out there on the China policy that's quite hawkish, and maybe we can bring along the Australians and the Japanese and the British. But like Europe, that's some real work that needs to be done to align views on China on issues of trade, on what we do in a Taiwan contingency. That's real bandwidth that needs to be applied. I think we could be doing similar things on tech. US and China are clearly heading towards some disentangling, decoupling, whatever you want to call it, on different supply chains. But we don't have common views with Europe on what kind of norms and standards we want to put around the development of AI, or how do you make social media not something that is destroying our democracies from within, or where do you protect privacy? There's a lot of work on climate, you know, in terms of how do our domestic actions fit together with some of the more aggressive actions. In some respects, our climate policy is currently in conflict with Europe's, right? Because they see it as an industrial policy that is favoring American industry, whereas they have this policy that, you know, we've had similar complaints about some of their border tax approaches. So if you truly believe that these issues of China, climate, and democracy are the big issues, and I do, like the democratic world, it's not just about like democracy delivers, you know, the stuff Biden talks about. It's also about do democracies agree with each other? And can we launch kind of shared initiatives in this space? And from that platform, I think your capacity to make it more attractive to a Nigeria or a South Africa or a post-Bolsonaro Brazil to team up with democracies on some things, not all. I think that grows when we just look like we have our stuff together and we're launching shared initiatives on things that everybody cares about, you know, climate and energy and health and tech. You know, if you build it, they will come to be a part of it. Now, in terms of what do you do to kind of scold, I would like to see us use our voice more frequently on issues, including in tough places like India. It kind of gets to what I was saying before about China. Like we make the mistake of still thinking of ourselves like the absolute one million pound gorilla. So we're very careful to say things that might upset people. 
But those people say things about us all the time. <laughs> like, turn on Indian television, turn on China state media. Like, I think we have to kind of say, like, you know what, guys, we're going to have a point of view on certain things. And you may freak out the first time you hear us say it, but we're just going to keep saying it. If, if journalists are being locked up, you know, we're going to be kind of a pain in the ass about that. You know, we got to a point where I think we became so powerful that we thought we couldn't have a voice like other countries. But in a weird way, because America is less powerful, we can have that voice. And one other thing I want to say about this, Yasha, it still isn't hard to find someone who will tell you how it's all over for America. And we've just made a complete fucking mess of things, you know, with Trump and we tore up agreements and we whiplash and even if you didn't like Obama, like this is not how a hegemon should be driving the car. And it's true that has real consequences. I think like name a major agreement that another country has signed with the Biden administration. It's not their fault. It's because who would sign an agreement with America when you have no idea what America is going to be in two years? For all that, the dollar's never been stronger, at least not in a really long time. Nobody else has the network of alliances and military bases we have. Nobody has the dynamic society and culture that we have as toxic as it seems. Our economy has proven to be strangely resilient relative to some others. So countries can't just turn off America. That's not an option. What would it mean for the United States to project that confidence in this moment? Because I think that there's this our tension, well, on the one hand, all of us are aware of how brittle American democracy is at the moment, and we're well aware that the next president may sing a very different tune from Joe Biden. And that's not just something that, you know, German and Indian Nigerian allies are going to be thinking about as they're dealing with the United States. It's something that, you know, the highest representatives of the United States seem sometimes painfully aware of. So you don't want to pretend that that's not the case, because that's ridiculous. On the other hand, I was struck in that interesting exchange early in the Biden administration between Antony Blinken and, and Sullivan on the American side and the sort of top Chinese foreign policy makers in Anchorage, I believe, that, you know, the, the Chinese had this sort of huge litany of complaints about the United States. And I mean, to caricature a little bit, the response of the United States was, well, but at least in our country, you can be self-critical. And I was sort of struck by the fact, as you were saying, that they're holding back. And I understand it was the beginning of a meeting that organized it. There were sort of particular local diplomatic reasons for that. But it was sort of, you know, the Chinese came in with this huge litany of complaints about how the United States is this terrible country. And response from the American side was not, well, look at what you're doing in your own country. You know, look at the good things we're doing in our country. Look at some of the things that our country can be proud of. It's, well, but we can be self-critical, right? So sort of what would it look like for the United States to you know, have a narrative, and you're a speechwriter, of course, well, to have a narrative about, you know, the case for the international order that the United States wants to preserve, the case for a democratic future that is appropriately self-critical, that doesn't look like it's just going in in a snooty way to harangue people in India and Nigeria and so on about their failings without being self-critical about our own, but that actually is able to put forth a vision that's going to be attractive to people, that doesn't just sound like we are, you know, more self-flagellating than the next person and not actually willing to make the case for our model. I think that the important thing on this, it applies here too, but in our own politics, is you have to connect your critique to things that people really care about. So to be specific about that, just standing up and saying, we support the freedom of expression, we support journalists, and you are wrong to lock up journalists, release ex-journalists, you know, release Yasha Monk from prison tomorrow. What did I do to you? Why am I suddenly in prison? That is much less effective than saying, you know what, in our history, journalists have been critical in uncovering abuse and in fighting corruption, which screws people. 
And so if you want to have less corruption in Nigeria, and you don't want all this money flowing to some kleptocrat crony near the top, you should allow for independent journalism, right? You're connecting a value like journalism for the freedom of the press to like what the public actually cares about, which is they're getting robbed by a bunch of corrupt people, which actually puts more pressure on the government to do it because it looks like they're suddenly covering up corruption by keeping the journalists in jail. They're not just offending America. I think it does a lot of disservice to these values globally when we kind of describe them in ways that are like, you know, we are offended by the way you're acting because we care about democratic values. If you actually believe that democratic values deliver better outcomes, you have to describe why you're making the criticism that you are making. And look, some of them are just, you shouldn't put a million people in concentration camps in Xinjiang province. So, so there are some that are purely moral. But I think American democracies generally could do more to couch their arguments in a persuasion frame and not just one that accepts that people know that we're right and they're wrong. And I also do believe that, like in the Obama years, I, I guess I was the you know co-author of the apology tour, which we never apologized, by the way. But what we would do, and this is Obama as a black man, insisted on saying, when we make the case for democracy, it's not that we describe our failures, we describe how democracy allowed us to overcome our failures. So if he's going to make a case for minority rights in Turkey, he's going to talk about how America has denied minority rights throughout its history, but it's democracy that allows us to grow and evolve and extend more rights to more people, and that has better outcomes for these reasons. And so the self-criticism can connect to, ironically, the criticism you end up making of the, the undemocratic actor, you know? Yeah, I like that. And I think there's always this debate about whether the flaws of the United States are because of its democratic institutions, or whether it's because of a failure to live up to the democratic institutions or the liberal ideals. And I'm very much on your side of how to characterize that. And I think one of the great strengths of Barack Obama as a president domestically, as well as internationally, was to frame the nature of America in those terms. How optimistic are you about the next 15 or 20 years of what's going to happen in the world? How optimistic are you about Ukraine being able to win the war against Russia or us being able to come to some kind of settlement of that war without further escalation? How optimistic are you about the ability of the United States to contain China? How optimistic are you about the ability of the international system to confront major challenges, whether it's climate change or whether it's global pandemics? I'm pretty worried about the next few years, Sasha. And to skip ahead, I am optimistic about the 15-year horizon for a bunch of reasons. I mean, I think people would rather not live like we are all living right now. And then the autocracy question, I think part of what's so interesting in the world is that the biggest flashpoints, Ukraine, Taiwan, Hong Kong, no more. But there are only a few places where people like had the chance to opt in to the autocratic model. And those are the people that want to opt out the most. You know, Taiwan could raise its hand any day and get a one country, two systems deal and be a part of China. If this Chinese model is so great, why do they not want to do that? Why do the people of Hong Kong clearly not want to do that? You know, Ukraine could have appended itself to reconstitute the Russian Empire, obviously, and avoided a tremendous amount of suffering. They didn't want to do that. So I'm kind of optimistic about what we're learning about human nature, preferring democratic systems that may not be exactly like the US's, but that are not like Russia and China's. I'm also optimistic that climate change, that the world is kind of kicking into gear of taking that seriously. You asked for an example earlier, by the way, on democracies. 
one example would be to to tell Mohammed bin Salman to kiss off and we're going to, you know, because we're changing our energy picture and we're not going to kind of come over here and beg you to change the OPEC production model, but put that aside. So I'm optimistic in kind of some of the structural forces that can get us through in terms of people's attitudes, in terms of the continuing strength of democracies and the resilience of democracies, and then people kind of focusing on the right things now, like climate, tech. I think we're actually circling around the right issue set after what I think was obviously too long a time prioritizing terrorism. What I'm pessimistic about is the next few years, though. You're a student of history, Yasha, more so than me. But I don't know how you can have this degree of just turbocharged nationalism in this many places and not have more Ukraines. We are talking at a time when you've got a weakening China, by the way, like a slowing economy and a COVID zero policy doesn't make sense. That is more nationalist than ever in terms of their ideology. That to me is dangerous. And Taiwan is an obvious flashpoint for that energy to, to go. You obviously have Putin, it's all collapsing around him, but he still has a lot of nuclear weapons. And even if we wake up one day and some stern-faced generals say that Vladimir Putin had an accident last night, I, I don't necessarily know that that means that the war in Ukraine goes away entirely and that Alexei Navalny is out of prison and is president of Russia. Like Even if Ukraine kind of continues to win, nobody thinks Ukraine is going to march into Moscow like we did at the end of World War II. So what does that mean? Like Russia is going to be there and there's going to be some version of probably a war in Ukraine for a while. Iran, the regime is cracking at the foundation, but there are people who won't want to give up power there. And MBS, who I just mentioned, you know, men with very high ambitions and, and not a lot of human feeling that is evident. Our own country. I have no idea who's going to be president of this country in two years. And it could be Donald Trump for all, you know, or it could be kind of a mean-spirited DeSantis type. And so I just feel like there's a lot of risk that the worst case scenario is like there's a war in Taiwan, there's a war in Ukraine, there's a war in Iran, and that feels kind of like World War III, right? Now, I'm not saying that is going to happen exactly, but the possibility of this could be a pretty disruptive decade of near misses and potential conflicts and economic disruptions from kind of the US and China kind of untangling themselves. Like, I think we're in for a pretty rocky period, but I'm optimistic, actually, that we'll come out on the other end of that okay, provided that you know we manage this period as effectively as we can. And to come back to some of our longer discussion, like a lot of foreign policies is preventing things from being much worse. You know, It can look messy and nobody's foreign policy looks all that good because you don't solve all the problems. But like if you can just kind of keep pots from boiling over, sometimes that is what gets you to the 10 or 15 year horizon. Ben Rhodes, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.